Hi, friend. You are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, a podcast created especially for someone who's not sure about relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Janelle Wood, and while I have a background in counseling and ministry with women, the truth is I've been through my own seasons of questioning my faith. So if you've ever struggled with not being sure where you belong, or you felt like you were faking faith, or maybe a friend just shared this episode with you and you are feeling a little wounded or skeptical of all things God-related right now, welcome. This podcast is just for you. Finding Something Real is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. My passion is Jesus Christ, and for me now, after having been through some real ups and downs on my own faith journey, I believe Christ is a hope and the answer to this world more than ever. But don't take my word for it. Listen to my friends as they share their own grace-filled journeys with you. My prayer is that if you haven't already, you'll find something real too. Welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast. This is your host, Janelle Wood. And today we're going to challenge some cultural norms with somebody's story here and some hard questions. So stay tuned. This is going to be great. I am back today with this month's special co-host, Lucrezia from Italy. Lou, welcome back. Thank you for having me again. Oh, my goodness. What time is it in northern Italy where you're at right now? 10 p.m. Yes, late. Thank you for making time to be here. <laughs> sure. 10 p.m. on a Friday, which... On a Friday night. That's like an 8 p.m. on a weekday. I mean, it's probably okay. It's yeah, it's, okay. it's totally fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, friend, I'm excited you're listening in for season four, where you may know that I'm inviting co-hosts and guests on to share their individual stories and also asking guests on to address some of my co-hosts' honest questions. And today's going to be good, like I already said. And friend, if you haven't already listened to Lou share her personal story and some honest questions she has about Christianity on the podcast, I encourage you to please go back and take a listen. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, but bottom line is, I don't think I've scared her away yet. (laughs) Obviously, she's here. (laughs) So Lou, it's an honor again. And Friend, I want to thank some uh, of our special Patreon supporters today. Thank you to Brian and Jill Wilson, your prayers and financial support of what we're doing here on the Finding Something Real podcast is so valuable. If you want to become a patron friend, uh, we have a bunch of perks for those of you who support this ministry and there's special content that you get when you sign up, including a bonus episode each month. Your support helps keep this show going and more information can be found on my website at findingsomethingreal.com. Now today, we're excited to welcome a very special guest. You may remember my friend Kristen DeGrossier, DeGrossier, depending on what day it is. Uh, She's a returning guest. We're never quite sure about her last name, Uh, but she's a very good friend of mine. And Kristen mentioned this today's guest um, months ago as someone she thought that I should interview eventually. And just recently, we met over Zoom to chat, and this seemed to be about the right time. In 1996, Drew surrendered his sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, leaving behind a homosexual relationship. 
He says his story stands in stark contrast to the current cultural narrative about sexual identity, demonstrating instead what Christ can do for a sexually broken life submitted to his lordship. With the current shifts in ideology regarding sexuality, identity, gender, and God's transformative power, Drew believes his ministry, experience, and insight stand as a redemptive voice of truth to the body of Christ. He's a pastor at Living Waters Church in Medford, Oregon, and released his first book, Are We There Yet?, in 2018. Of all the roles and titles he carries, the most prized titles are that of husband and father. Drew and his wife Suzanne have been married since 2004, and together they have the joy of raising their three daughters. Drew, I'm so excited to hear your story. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> Did I even say your full name? It's Drew Berryessa. Drew Berryessa, that's yeah. right. And you, if people wanted to find out more about you after this, could you go ahead and tell them where they could find more about you? Yeah, you can go to my ministry website, which is alivingletter.org. And uh, that's my personal ministry that I uh, that I travel the country and speak on these issues. And uh, that's where any resources that I put out would be available. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook where you can find me either under a living letter ministries. If you find, if you look for Drew Berryessa, you're going to find my personal page and there's going to be pictures of food and <laughs> kids and my wife and, you know, random things, probably a cat somewhere, but you know, the ministry website is where you want to go if you have the questions relevant to this episode. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. And we'll yeah. put all that in the show notes as well. So Drew, you have a very compelling story. Would you go ahead and share some of that with us? Yeah, I'll share the the truncated shorter version or else we'd be here a long time. <laughs> um, so I came to know Jesus when I was just a very, very young child, about four years old or so when I gave my life to Christ. And I grew up in a family that attended church. And although wasn't extremely what I would call religious, we we were faithful church attenders and um, everything seemed fine in my very normal, uh, Washington state, central Washington, rural conservative environment that I was growing up in. Basically Chelan, Lou. Basically Chelan, <laughs> but just south and with a lot more apples and, you know, a lot less lake. But, um, yeah, very, very, very uh, normal childhood, except that um, there was a lot of dysfunction and pain going on in my parents' relationship that I had no idea. I mean, you grow up in an environment, you think it's normal and you, you don't really have a context, especially that young for what's going on because it's your normal. And so um, when I was around eight years old, my, mar- my, my parents' marriage completely imploded. And it was one of the nastier divorces that I've heard of. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, extremely painful for me and my two brothers. Um, But what was probably more painful and more difficult was how our church handled it. Um, It was the the 80s in a very conservative church in, you know, white middle-class America. And divorce was just not something people did while still in the church. A lot of people had the good common sense to leave the church to get divorced. And uh, my my family didn't. Mm. And what I experienced um, just by virtue of guilt by association was a lot of judgment and a lot of pain and a lot of rejection. And what that did in my eight-year-old mind is that cemented this belief, this, this agreement that I made that the church is not a safe place to share your broken places. Mm. It's not a safe place to share the, the, the pain that you're going through or the mistakes that you've made. 
And, and that stuck with me. That stuck very painfully with me. And um, my parents, they, and their divorce, uh, neither of them really ever went back to church, but I found myself uh, at about 14 years old, going back to the same church to go on a youth retreat. I, I kind of think that my mom was just tired of having me and my twin brother at home in the summer and said, get these kids out of here. <laughs> you know, the closest thing to send us away for about a week was church camp. And um, that's where uh, I kind of reintroduced my life to Jesus and began to become interested again in my faith. Because after eight years old, I didn't go to church until 14. And I was really angry at God and really, um, really hurt mm -hmm. and really struggling with, with, you know, the, the standard questions of like, God, why did you let this happen? Um, coincidentally, at about the exact same time was when I started recognizing that I was attracted to the same sex. So that made for a very, very interesting dynamic in my life to be reintroduced to Jesus, to, to love Jesus and want to be pursuing relationship with him, but also to be experiencing these feelings that I didn't ask for and I didn't want, I didn't choose mm -hmm. and feeling absolutely no safe place to go to talk about it. Can I pause you real quick? Just real yes, quick there. Yes. You said earlier that most people have the good sense to leave church before they deal with that. Would you say that most people have the good sense when they're struggling with those kind of feelings, maybe to leave too, or that's kind of the perception yeah, I think that I think that a lot of people who experience same-sex attraction or gender issues or any of any of that whole LGBTQ gamut of struggle, um, I, I don't think it's necessarily a desire to leave church. It's that they intrinsically know by the way people talk, by the attitudes, by the implicit messages that are taught in the church, often that it's not going to be a safe place for them to to share what they're experiencing. Yeah, and. You know, that's, that's for a number of reasons, and it was similar for me in that, you know, back then it was the the early 90s, and, you know, L LGBTQ identity was not nearly as mainstream as it is now. It wasn't like it was in the 60s. It wasn't, you know, viewed as criminal or anything like that, and I didn't view it that way. I had an uncle who was gay, and so I, I knew exactly what a homosexual identity was, and I knew that I wouldn't be rejected by my parents if I was gay because they didn't reject my uncle. I didn't have any of that fear. Mm. But what I did fear was how the church would treat me if they knew, if they knew what I was struggling with, if they knew what I was experiencing. And, um, you know, the other thing that I think that was playing in my head, and I, I have a lot more clarity on it now as an adult and watching, you know, the passage of time and how the church relates on these things is that, the church really had, was not equipped and to have any effective ministry or, or support to me uh, in that. And often I think that's the same situation. A lot of people who struggle like I did experiences, there's not, there's not, there's not any real equipping or effective ministry for someone like that beyond just like, well, you know, that's a sin, right? You know, and that's, that's, not super helpful to mm -hmm. someone experiencing these feelings. And so for me, what that I, be, that I began doing is internalizing that struggle of it's not okay to talk about this. And I started transferring how people would treat me if they knew on what I believed and how I believe God viewed me and, and expected of me. Mm -hmm. Because 
you know, for many of us, our most consistent idea of who God is, is who his people are or who the leaders are that represent him. And I was growing up in a church that, um, from my perspective back then, or he's the youth pastor back then, was really, really um, focused on performance. Mm. And if you were performing well, you were liked and popular and loved. And if you weren't, if you weren't as cool, then you just weren't as loved. And so my perception of that, and which was probably highly attuned to it because I was so afraid of rejection, um, my perception of that got transferred onto God. And so I began interacting with God in this place of like, well, I know I have a struggle that I didn't ask for. I don't want, I can't control. And it's plaguing me all the time. So in order for God to love me, I better behave and I better perform and try to make up for what I see is so intrinsically offensive to him internally. Hmm. And so I, like, I memorized all the scripture I could. I was on the Bible quizzing team. I was, you know, involved in worship ministries. I was involved in like anything that I could, anytime the doors of the church were open and I could be there, I was there because I wanted to be acceptable by God. And that wasn't something I learned from the scriptures. <laughs> it was something I learned from the culture that I was experiencing and from my own trauma. Did you ever feel like this isn't worth it? You know, yeah, I came back to Christ at 14, but now I'm also struggling with this and I don't want it to be a struggle anymore. I just want to give in to this. And did you yeah. ever consider just leaving the church and going, I'm going to, because from what you're saying, it sounds like you didn't feel like you could have both. You felt right. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say that for the first several years of my life, of, of that experience from like 14 to about 18, 19, uh, I did not attempt or believe I could have both, nor did I want to try to tempt fate. Mm. And so I was trying just to be, you know, acceptable before the Lord. But, you know, you, you try to perform for God's love and you try to earn God's love. And God's love is a free gift. It isn't, it isn't earned or deserved. It isn't and any merit of our own it's by his grace and his choice to love us alone and when you have that mentality and you're trying to earn it eventually you're going to run into the end of that ability to 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 perform that way because you're going to begin feeling frustrated and feeling uh, disillusioned and feeling uh, angry at god for not loving you back the way that that you're trying to love him through performance because it's just not the way that god relates to us and so um, right around 18, 19 years old, I, I reached this point where I was so frustrated and so internally struggling and so like looking forward in my life because I'd been praying forever for God to take this struggle away from me and he didn't. And there was no one and nothing around me that, that appeared to have any solutions or options for me for help. And I never heard a redemptive story in church on this issue, any other issue. You could be a prostitute, you could be a drug addict, you could be, you know, whatever else, and God could redeem you. But I had never heard in 20, uh, almost 20 years at that point of association with the church, any story of someone being redeemed out of this struggle. Mm -hmm. And so it just felt really hopeless. And so as I was looking forward to my life and trying to project, like, what is my life going to look like? Is it always going to be this lonely? Is it always going to be this, like, deep? intense struggle and this ambivalence inside me of like wanting something that I can't want and not wanting it, but it not going away. Like it got so hopeless 
so frustrating that I remember having a very honest conversation with the Lord. Um, probably one of my more authentic prayers where it was basically like, God, I've tried so hard to be good and to please you and to, you know, earn your, the healing for this or earn, you know, freedom from this or redemption or, or uh, deliverance from this. And it, there's nothing. And I feel so distant from you and I feel so rejected and unseen by you and unheard by you. Basically, God, your love sucks. Like, so if I have an opportunity to be loved by someone, I'm going to take it. And so I, I made this, what I thought was an idle threat at, you know, 19 years old in Yakima, Washington in the like late nineties thinking like, there's no gay scene in Yakima, Washington. <laughs> no, there's no raves out in the orchards with, you know, whoa, whoa, you know, it's, there's nothing going on in Yakima, Washington. But you know what? People struggle everywhere and people are dealing with all sorts of things in every city and every place. And it took maybe three weeks for me to meet a guy at church who was new to our church, who I thought, well, he needs a friend. My code language was I was attracted to him and I wanted to be closer to him. And we struck up a friendship. And within three or four weeks, he shared with me that he struggled with this the way that I had. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden there was an opportunity. And, you know, our friendship turned very, very codependent and very enmeshed in a very short period of time. And then it, from that point, within maybe a month, turned into a sexual relationship. And I did both. I had this relationship over here and I fully, like, not fully embraced it, but kind of fully embraced it. And I still was the good church boy, you know, over here. And those two worlds didn't collide. And, you know, because I was not willing to let go of my relationship with the Lord at that point. Why not? Why not, Drew? Why? There's some people that would say, you know what? A God who won't allow you to have what you want uh, right. is not a God worth serving. And in fact, that's a message that kind of is very prevalent right now. Yeah. And there's people who listen to this, who are listening to your story and going, why wouldn't you just leave that, the confines right. of that? That's a great question. I think one of the reasons why is because, and this is something that I've, I've learned with the Lord in my relationship with him now, and it's, it's really foundational and bedrock for me. That not every experience that I want from the Lord, is he going to answer in the way that I want him to answer it? But I've learned to look back at all the other things, the other places where he has shown up powerfully. And so if there's a moment in my life now where it doesn't look like things are going my way or it's very difficult or something's unresolved. I go back to my history and I look at the times in the, in my life where the Lord showed up powerfully mm -hmm. and he was tangible and I weather whatever storm knowing the presence of God is with me, even if I don't feel it in the moment. And even back then, even back then at 19, there was something in me that would look back at those moments of real connection with the Lord and real experiences of, of his grace, his love, and his people where they were good and where, where what I knew of him from the scripture just was true. And I couldn't let it go. No matter how much it was breaking me up on the inside and how much I wanted to be able to let it go, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I couldn't. As, as, as true as it was that I felt um, very hopeless for the future, in this area of life, I also had all this evidence that God was real and he was still with me and still, I don't know, still a powerful presence in my life.
And so I just, I, I couldn't let that go. Not only that, but another part of it was my world was involved with my, my church family. Like my whole world was that. And because my family of origin was so dysfunctional and broken, I didn't really have any relationships with, not deep relationships with any of them, but I had deep relationships with people in my church. Mm. And I didn't want to let go of that. And I didn't want to let go of them. And of course, I also believe that if I told them the truth then they would reject me anyway, but I wasn't willing to tell the truth. So it was this tension of like, I can't leave the Lord, I, but I don't want to live like this. And so living that double life for probably about three, four months was where I was at. And I'll be honest with you that the first month was bliss. Like, you know, sex is fun. Like, <laughs> it's fun. It feels good and it meets some needs. And I had a lot of needs for affection. I had a lot of needs for safety and love and acceptance and, and to be seen and known and to feel like I was, I was received and, and, and loved regardless. And this relationship was doing that for me. It was the most vulnerable I had ever been with any other person and they still wanted me. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, on the love languages, I'm like physical touch is way up there. And, you know, I, up till that point, like hadn't had any real physical touch or, or love from my family in years. And so that was really hitting a, a, a very acute need in my life. And, you know, I, I wish we would talk about it in church more often that, that sin, things that are classified as sin in the scripture we do them because they meet a need and they feel good and they satisfy for a season because that otherwise we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't have any temptation to fulfill needs or to get our needs met through those methods because they wouldn't be satisfying, but they are. And so for about a month or so, it was great. And I didn't think about the incongruity or the duplicity that I was living. Nobody knew. And so I was happy and I was fine. And then probably about a month and a half in, I started feeling conviction, like deep conviction. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't in the voice that the church had spoken before about homosexuality, because I mean, anyone that's dealt with this and been in the church knows what the church has said and how they've said it in the past about homosexuality. It's like very condemning, very, very uh, lack of empathy or compassion, very villainizing of that community. And that's what I would expect. Well, I would have expected the Lord to sound like in His conviction in my life, but it wasn't at all like that. The Lord was just so gentle with me, and so, so plain, and so non-confrontational, but just, but just um, bringing truth to me and making me consider it. So it was like, you know, I always say that the place the Lord always gets me and always speaks to me is where I have my guard down the most is in the shower because there's no distractions and Same. I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, yeah. that's where, and I always feel it's kind of rude because it's like, Lord, <laughs> modesty, you know, it's, just, it's a little modest he situation. Care. <laughs> he didn't care, you know, and, and I, I was in the shower one day and the Lord just simply said to me, he said, Drew, this relationship is so good. Why are you hiding it? And, it, and that's all he said. And I was left with this tension of like, because I know you believe this is sin. And I know that, that according to the word of God, the actions, and I, I, I want to take a minute here and just like clarify something. 
the actions are sin, not the temptation, not the, not the vulnerability, not the, not the experience of same-sex attraction. That's just, that's just evidence that there's something going on in my heart, my soul. That's not sinful. Taking it to the place of acting on it, like almost any other thing in our lives where if we have a temptation, Jesus was tempted and he wasn't guilty of sin. When we take that and it gives birth to sinful behavior. So the Lord was confronting not the fact that I struggled with this issue, but the behavior that I that I'd gone and done it. And and he was very gentle on that of just like, if this is so good, why are you hiding? And I had to wrestle with that. And I had to wrestle with where my own conviction was about my behavior. And my the ultimate answer was that I knew that this was wrong, but I did not want to give it up because I didn't want to go back to feeling so lonely and empty and unloved and hopeless again. Mm-hmm. Um, the scripture in Proverbs says something that's, that I found very applicable and powerful in this struggle. And it says, this is Proverbs 27, seven. And it says to him who is well-fed honey is not desirable, but to him who is starving, the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. And in modern language, I would just put it like, if, if your needs are being met with the right thing, you know, you're, you're satiated, you're good. You're not going to go into excess. You're not going to like, you don't need more because you're filled up. But if you're empty and starving, something that is not good for you is going to feel really good for you because bad love is better than no love at all. And so that, that's where I kind of found myself and I wasn't willing to give it up and I wasn't willing to surrender for another probably about four months or so. When in a story too long to tell, the Lord began to uh, not expose me, but put, make people in my life who are important to me aware of the fact that this life and this way that I was living was, was changing me negatively, Hmm. was affecting me. And I wasn't the same person I had been. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, as in love with the Lord clearly, because I, you know, sin will do that where it will dampen your, your understanding and your, your love and your zeal for the Holy Spirit and for the Lord and for the word. And that just began, you know, working itself out externally in my life. And I had a really good friend, the, the, the wife of our youth pastor, who simply said to me one day, he's like, she said, Drew, you're not the same. You're, you're, do, you're sinning somewhere and it's killing you. Can you please repent because we love you? Whoa. <laughs> holy crap, you know, like, how do you, I mean, what do you do with that? Like, you get mad, like, you walk away. <laughs> that's what I did. I was like, you don't know, you don't, you don't know me, you know, and I'm like, I'm not in sin. And I left and I got about a mile down the road from their house. And I was like, holy crap, the Lord's telling on me. <laughs> and I got really upset and really angry at God. Honestly, I got the most angry I think I've ever gotten at God in my life on that drive where I'm like, Oh, now you're speaking. Mm -hmm. Oh, now you're addressing this now that somebody loves me and that somebody is like meeting my needs. Now you have an opinion. Like I cried out to you for years and you were silent, but now. And so I was really pissed off, honestly. And then within like five minutes of that tirade, it moved to fear because I did not want to experience the rejection. I knew in my heart, in my head that I would experience if people found out because you don't tell the broken pieces of your life in church because you get rejected. And so then it went from that point to like, okay, God, I'm going to, I'm going to obey you. 
because I don't feel like I have another option here. And as scary as that was, and as, as, as heavy as it felt to face life without this person in my life, I didn't really feel like I had another choice. And so I went directly from their house after my tirade on the side of the road to my boyfriend's house. And I, I broke things off with him. I said, you know, please forgive me. I sinned with you. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God and myself. And I can't do this anymore. Uh, please forgive me and never talk to me again. And I broke everything off. Oh my and how did he react? You know, he wasn't out of the closet. He wasn't, you know, he was in a place, I think, of similar tension. So I think he understood, but he wasn't happy about it. Like he tried to reach out to me later and tried to strike up friendship or something again. And I, I, I wouldn't, mm. I was, I was too vulnerable. I would have gone back and I just couldn't. Yeah. And so uh, broke off that relationship and never really had anything to do with him again. And then hid and tried to conceal that all for another two years before finally confessing to my youth pastor and his wife. And at that point I was about 20, 21 or so years old, uh, 20 to 21, somewhere in there. All the years are blurry now, I'm 43, I don't even know. So, but, so Drew, real quick, you said something in there that makes me wonder why you would do that because you said, and I quote, you don't tell the broken pieces of your life in church because you'll get rejected. Why right. two years later, after, you know, secretly going, okay, I'm, I, God saw me, I'm done with this. Why two right. years later would you tell the church when you felt like that? Because I was exhausted. You know, I, I, in that two years, if I had felt like I needed to earn God's approval before actually committing the sin, I felt so much more guilty and dirty now. And I still didn't have a change in my filter and my perception of who God was. So I was still trying to earn God's favor and love. And I did that feverishly for two more years. And I got to the point where I was so exhausted with it and so looking for an out of just like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to get past this, but I can't continue to carry the weight of this anymore. And I don't want to. And the Lord uses such strange things to motivate us sometimes. Like I'm sitting in church on a Sunday night because we still have Sunday night services at this point. And they had a traveling drama group that came to perform. And, you know, as they're performing, I'm like, this thing's cool. I don't know if you know this, I'm a bit dramatic. So, <laughs> you know, like this was speaking my language and people just kept whispering in my ear as they're performing, like, you would do great at this. And I'm like, I would do great at this. And as a young man who did like, had no idea of what my calling or what my future was, I thought, well, this is a good option. Maybe I can join this group. They're based out of Minneapolis. No one knows me. Like I can restart my life somewhere else and be dramatic for the Lord. And, and so I went up to the director of this thing after their performance. And I was like, how does someone get involved in this? And he's like, oh, here's an application. The third question on the application was, have you ever been involved in homosexuality? Which is kind of wise for a drama group, like in the church. <laughs> I think it's just wisdom right there. Of like, some of these guys who have some issues, you know? <laughs> so I thought like, I really felt called to this thing. And I just had this conviction where like, I can't get accepted to a ministry by lying. Mm. I just can't. But then I had the second conviction of like, 
I also can't let these complete strangers be the first people I confess to. And so I went up to my youth pastor and his wife and I was like, I need to talk to you. And they were like, here? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not in the church. Lightning will come down and consume me. You know, it's like, I have to go somewhere else. And so they invited me over to their house and they sat me down on their couch and I tried to confess. And I literally for an hour or two, I could not get the words out of my mouth. And then the youth pastor, James, he opened his Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And anyone in the gay community or anyone who's been in the church who's struggled with these issues knows this passage of scripture because it's, it's, it's what the gay community in the past used to call one of the clobber passages. It's one of the passages that specifically mentions homosexuality and condemns it. And it says, you know, it starts very cheerfully, do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so as James is saying this, I know he knows because even though there's a lot of other sins listed in that, that almost anybody in church today has committed some of those sins or is currently committing some of those sins, that passage is never brought up except for with homosexuality. The, the rest of those sins are not dealt with the same way. Why do you think, like, why is that? That's a great question. And I think one of the reasons why is the vast majority of people in church relate to the other ones a lot more than they relate to the struggle of homosexuality. Because those who identify on the LGBTQ spectrum, just current statistics in the last 10 to 15, 20 years is like three to 5% of the population. Yeah. You know, so, but in the church setting, I'm gonna say that's much, that in the past, probably much lower. And so the people who are preaching, the people who are leading, these people relate to the gossips. They relate to the, to the cheaters, to the liars, to the prideful. This is their laundry list of sins. And so, because they know they have been redeemed and, you know, it's like, these are common, these are, these are, these are common to most people. I think it's a lot easier for them to let themselves off the hook. And I think the second thing is that none of those other ones are so tied to identity. Homosexuality, homosexual behavior in our culture, if you feel it and you do it, you are it. Like, if you feel homosexual attraction and you've acted out homosexually, you're a homosexual. That's your identity. And with, when the church deals with this issue, there's this tension that comes with that identity piece that is unique to other things that the Bible calls sin. Because when, when you say to someone and you're referring to them, love the sinner, hate the sin, and you're talking about pride, you're not talking about their identity. You're not talking about their whole community that they orient their lives around. You're not talking about, you know, an issue that has become, you know, culturally a tinderbox when you talk about homosexuality, you can't say love the sin or hate the sin because all the person hears is I hate you because your struggle is your identity. It's part of who you are. It's part of, you know, the, your, your human rights. It's part of like all of this movement of community and, and connection and belonging and self-identification that it's so hard to differentiate. And so in one respect, I get it. Like I, I get why it's different than other things in the church. But at the same time, God didn't say it was different. And the church has handled it in a way, allowing culture to instruct us on how to respond to this and not what God has said. And so that's why I was in that position. The second he started quoting that verse, I knew he knew what my sin was because no one else gets called out with that verse. The gossips do not get called out with that verse. The prideful do not get called out with the, that verse. 
Adulterers do not get called out with that verse, but homosexual people do. And knowing that he knew, I just sat there believing that he was going to reject me, that this, this man and his wife would become like, you know, family to me. They'd have me in their home three nights a week for two years. They were, they were some of the most important people to me. I knew in my heart that this was going to be the last time I was ever invited into their home. I knew I was going to lose all of my community. And he, he got through this verse, he got to the, to the, to the line homosexual offenders and he stopped. And then I really knew he knew and I couldn't speak. I just sat there dejected, staring at the floor. And then when he finally got to the end of verse 10, which repeats will not inherit the kingdom of God, he said, Drew is your sin in this list. And I just nodded my head. Yeah. And Amy, his wife, who was the woman that had said two years previous, like, you're not the same, you know, please repent. Your sin is killing you. She, who I would never describe as having like the most tact <laughs> said, oh yeah, we've already known. We've known for two years. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm like, what, what? <laughs> and she named the person. She named when the relationship started. She named when it ended. And she says, Drew, we've known for two years. And I could not wrap my head around that because everything that I believed to be true about how I would be treated if people knew was that I would be rejected. And that is not how they treated me. They treated me with nothing but love, nothing but compassion, nothing but trust. Like I was the assistant director of youth ministry under them. Like they trusted me. They, they imparted life to me. They, they spoke identity over me all the time. They gave me you know, responsibilities, they, they made me part of their family. And I sat there trying to absorb that. I'm like, there's no way you could have known or else you would have rejected me. And then James said something that just changed my total perspective on the Lord, on his grace, on his mercy, and even, you know, in the church, he said, well, Drew, we love you. And we just wanted you to feel safe enough to tell us yourself. And although I accepted Christ as my savior when I was four, I didn't meet Jesus and truly know him for who he really is until that moment. Because the unconditional love and grace of God was made manifest to me. It was made real to me by the patient, constant love of James and Amy over two years, waiting for me to trust them enough to tell them the thing that they already knew I felt like would kill me if I told. And so, I mean, then he said to me, have you ever heard the rest of the passage? I said, there is no rest to that passage. It ends with hell. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And he read verse 11, which I had never heard quoted. I had heard nine and 10 quoted, but never heard verse 11 quoted. And verse 11 says this, but that's what some of you were, but you were washed and you were justified and you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And he said, Drew, do you know what justified means? And I said, no, I, I no. He said, justified, never sinned. Like God does not see you through the lens of that, that struggle, that those feelings, those behaviors, you're clean, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're his. It's just as if you've never sinned. And he goes, and you know, honestly, we don't know how to help you with this. We don't have any answers for you on like, 
how this could resolve someday. But what we do have is evidence 2000 years ago that the word says that's what some of them were, but that's not who they are now. That Jesus was able and the Holy Spirit was able to transform their identities and their behavior and make them new. And so we don't know what that looks like for you. We don't know what the future holds for you, but we love you and we're with you. And we believe Jesus has more for you than this. I'll tell you what, that was a life-changing moment for me. And, you know, I'm a bit, again, I'm dramatic. So I went from their house having almost like at some one point in those two years, considering suicide rather than ever telling anybody. I confessed my struggle to 50 people in a week. Like from that point, I just went like, freedom feels too good. Like, I don't (laughs) I don't want to carry this anymore. And so I'm going to tell everybody. And if they love me and accept me for who I am, then I'm going to know it. And if they reject me, then I'll know it. But I know these guys love me. And if they're the only ones, that's enough. I'm not going to carry the secret. I'm not going to keep secrets with Satan anymore. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be free. And I'll tell you what happened is that out of the 50, only one person had a slightly negative reaction. And that was the senior pastor of the church. And his reaction was only negative because he was like, thank you for sharing this with me. This is awesome what God's doing in your life. Please stop telling everybody because people can be mean. People could crucify you for this information. And then I got Galatians 2.20 tattooed on my leg, which says I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. It is Christ that lives within me because I thought if crucifixion is good enough for him, it's good enough for me. And I kept telling people. Cause I'm just that dramatic and just, you know, what? <laughs> well, but it, and now that's become your whole ministry, right? You talk about this uh, yeah. all the time, all the time, all the live long day. And it's so funny because the thing with those other 49 people was that when I confessed this to them, they all had the same, every person had the same reaction where it was like, Oh my gosh, thank you for sharing this with me. I'm so sorry. You carried this on your own for so long. That's really amazing. Now, can I tell you what I'm struggling with? Because I haven't told anyone and I'm just as afraid. Mm. And I found this reality that everybody was being lied to the same way that I was. Regardless of what the sin struggle was, there's this common lie from the enemy that if people know what you're dealing with, they're going to reject you. And even though it was true in my experience before, it doesn't have to be. We can change that. And by my vulnerability and my honesty, it just freed other people to do the same thing. Mm. And it still does, which I think is pretty cool. Well, I we could ask a lot of follow-up questions. I want Lou to be able to ask some of her specific questions, because as you know, she has a different perspective on all of this. Um, but I guess one question I have for you, uh, just to wrap up this it, in the part of the story that you're telling is, do you think people would have been as loving towards you if you had said, Hey, I'm Drew and I'm gay. No, no, I don't. I think that I, and I don't think it would have been because for some of them, it wouldn't have been because they wouldn't want to be loving. But I think the difference when I said, this is what I'm struggling with versus this is what I am. That piece of identity is really difficult for people to deal with, uh, for all of us to deal with, because if someone challenges your identity in it, no matter what your identity is, it's going to get a hostile reaction every single time because our identities are so powerfully wrapped up in where we find our security 
in, in what we find our purpose to be on where we feel like we belong. And so when someone has reached a point to say, this is what I am, uh, I am gay or I am trans, to challenge them with that, to say like, well, you know, that's not how God made you, or, you know, this is a choice you're making or anything like that. It's not even now in the, the, the logical conversation realm, it, because it's going to trigger that person into a place of fighting for their identity and for what makes them feel secure. Mm. And so, you know, that, that identity piece for me, I, I viewed it as my struggle because where my identity is found first is in Christ. And I don't need another qualifier for that. Like I don't identify as ex-gay or heterosexual. I think those are really bad labels for all of us as if heterosexual attraction to the opposite sex is somehow inherently more virtuous. It's, you know, there's a lot of broken heterosexuals out there. You know, it's like, just because you're attracted to the opposite sex does not make you holier than the person who's attracted to the same sex. Mm -hmm. It just means that your attraction and your brokenness might be different. It's just not holier. It might be closer to the target that God set up for marriage, but it's not, it's not holier and it's not, it doesn't make you better. And so um, for me, because I viewed it as a struggle and my identity first was in Christ, it was easier for them to be able to speak into me without feeling like they had to challenge my identity. And because I wasn't identifying in this thing that creates this tension for every traditional Bible-believing Christian of like, well, what do I do? Because this is sin. And if this is who you say you are, how do I love you but not condone your behavior? It's this tension point that I didn't have to deal with because I didn't, I didn't say it as my identity. Mm-hmm. It was something I was experiencing, not who I was. That makes sense? It does. And I'm going to let Lou ask the follow-up questions because I know she's got them. <laughs> I have a question. I do have a question. I'm, I'm, oh, I, I really liked uh, your story. And by the way, did you end up doing that drama thing? No, they turned out not to steal my money and kind of be a cult. It's so funny what the Lord. I dodged a bullet there, but the Lord will use whatever He wants you to get us where He needs. That's good. Um, Great. Um, And I have a question. Yeah. Uh, You said that. mm, Oh, um, the problem is that. when you say I am something, you know, people are gonna challenge your identity, telling you it's a choice you made. And do you think it is a choice? I mean, with other things, like when you lie, you choose to lie. When you cheat on your partner, you choose to cheat. I mean, maybe the context might kind of, you know, um, that's a great question. Have an impact on you, but you were 14. You say you were 14 when you yeah. um, kind of figured out that you right. um, had same-sex sex attraction. So when, like, I, when I identified it as sexual, yeah. But there yeah. were other things that I experienced much younger that... Yeah, and I don't, I, don't, I don't honestly think that a child, like, consciously makes choices that way. Yeah, of course um, So what do you think? How do you call it? What do you think? I really appreciate the question. And it's, I think it's a super important one for the church to understand in this and for honestly, for every one of us to wrestle with uh, this question, because um, like you said, like 
you know, a, you do, people do choose their actions, but they don't choose their temptations. They don't choose their vulnerabilities. I didn't choose this. I, no one who experiences uh, same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria or anything like that chooses to have this experience or chooses to have this, this vulnerability or this, this, um, this, this orientation. And I don't think that people like, again, I don't think people who would identify as heterosexual choose one day to be heterosexual. So if they're gonna cheat on their spouse because they're just, you know, a raging heterosexual, you know, they didn't choose the vulnerability, but we do choose how we cultivate our vulnerabilities. We do choose how we engage with them and how we interact with them and how we steward our lives. That's just true across the board, whether it be something that's a vulnerability or a temptation or a talent or a gift or an interest or spiritual discipline, whatever it is, we have the, the permission and the gift and the mandate from God to cultivate our lives. And, you know, the scripture says, if you sow to please the flesh, you'll reap from the flesh destruction. You sow to please the spirit, you'll reap from the spirit life. That's just, you know, that, that law at work. So no, I didn't choose any of my vulnerabilities. I didn't choose because of my dramatic nature, which I come by very <laughs> honestly. I didn't, I didn't choose to be rejected by kids in grade school because they didn't relate to me. I am, I'm not interested in sports and or hunting in any shape, form or fashion. But I can tell you that 95% of the boys in my middle, in my grade school were. And so that set me up to feel disconnected from them. I enjoy cooking, you know, on the playground when they're playing kickball or softball and they're like, want to join us, Drew? And I'm like, no, I do not. But cupcake, <laughs> you know, it's not relatable. <laughs> Those are not things that I chose. And so I don't choose my vulnerabilities when I got 14 years old and hormones, sec secondary sexual hormones kicked in 600% and all these emotional needs and perceptions in my life got commingled with sexual hormones and puberty. I didn't choose that vulnerability, but I did choose how I cultivated it forward. And when I got into you know 17, 18 years old and I got the internet, I started looking at pornography and I cultivated lust whether it was heterosexual or homosexual, I cultivated lust in my life. And so I was reaping a lot of reactions in my spirit and in my flesh from that cultivation of lust. And everybody does. I mean, you know, not lust in particular, but we all cultivate and we all reap the consequences of what we cultivate. So with that said, like, no, I don't think anybody chooses their vulnerability. They don't choose the traumas that happen to them. They don't choose the, the genetics that they're born with. They don't choose how epigenetics you know, react and, and make genetic um, expression happen. We don't choose our family of origin. We don't choose the culture we're born in and we don't choose what people choose to teach us in church. A lot of those things contributed to my struggles, but I do have the free agency before the Lord to make a decision on what I do with all that vulnerability and all that non-choice. And so that's where I think that when the church looks at someone who says, well, you know, this is a choice, you can choose not to be gay. You, you know, that, that's a problem right there. You know, you can choose not to identify as gay, but you can't choose what you feel. You can choose how you respond to what you feel, how you either submit it to the word of God, or you decide that the word of God doesn't have authority over that and choose to go with those feelings. And that's everybody's choice given by God as a free will. And you know, when we get into that conversation, rather than the church making the pointing our finger, like you're choosing this, we need a lot more compassion to understand that there's 
so much more that goes into this vulnerability. And rather than looking at what might be the expression of that vulnerability, how about ministering to the needs represented in it? How about having some compassion and some understanding and recognizing that if that person chooses to surrender their sexuality to Jesus, that is a very difficult and a very lonely and a very consequential journey. And rather than judgment and fingers wagging at us, we need a whole lot more support and understanding mm -hmm. and love. So, so yeah. I have a question. I've had people on this podcast before, wise, wise people, um, who've basically shared that how the church feels about homosexuality makes absolutely no sense if you're not a Christian. Uh, I would love your thoughts on that because I think that the homosexual and LGBTQ issue, especially as we've opened up our home to young women from Europe, uh, it's a major issue. And not only is it a major issue, but it's like one of the first questions or the first conversations I have with a young woman when we're talking about Christianity, like, well, don't Christians hate gay people? That's, first of all, I hope fake news, but how do you respond to somebody who's outside of Christianity looking in going, uh, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't make any sense at all? Well, I would say that probably for a lot of people in the church, it doesn't make sense either, because I think that the root of the issue is a much bigger problem in our understanding of the theology of sexuality in general. Um, because, you know, a lot of the church, we're oriented towards families, children, and marriage, as if that is the pinnacle of human experience. And we make single people feel like second-class citizens, and that the goal is to get them married off. But that's not, that's not a biblical view of sexuality. A biblical view of sexuality is, is faithfulness and, and chastity, either in marriage or singleness. And chastity displaying and the image of God uniquely. Chastity <laughs> meaning like, not, not like that you're, own, you're, you're right, not okay. going outside of that marriage. I just want to clarify, to God likes sex. <laughs> no sex in marriage, anybody. You know, let's go back to the medieval you days. You thought he was normal, but he just don't. <laughs> I just lost my audience. No, 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 no. Uh, no, I just that 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 purity and that chastity that is in singleness or marriage, meaning you only choose the partner that you're married to for all sexual desire, all sexual expression. That's all you get. And you know, sexuality is less about marriage and it is about like faithfully representing the image of God and displaying the image of God as male or female in his image co-equally created in his image and revealing different aspects of his character and his nature. And so because we don't really have a theology of that, that's robust and good and accurate. And because most of the teaching that people get in church on sex is don't, you know, when we start getting hard lined about something like homosexuality, yeah, it doesn't make sense to the world at all. And it doesn't make sense to most of the church because we don't know how to defend why that's wrong or why that is outside of God's plan, because we have such a dumbed down infantile view most of the time of sexual morality as a long list of do's and don'ts knowing what we're against rather than knowing what we're for and so yeah i would say it makes perfect sense to the, to the world around us why this doesn't make sense and it also doesn't make sense because you know the the greatest commandments as jesus said love the lord your god with all your heart your soul your mind your strength and love your neighbor as yourself you know, these two wrap up the entirety of the law and the prophets. And then one new commandment he gives to us, love each other as I've loved you. And then we go around saying, oh, by the way, we hate gay people. 
if the greatest commandments are to love people, then our response to a community that doesn't agree with us or doesn't live the way that we feel convicted to live doesn't make sense based on what Jesus himself told us to do. And so I think that it would be a lot more palatable by culture if the church demonstrated love and acceptance, not necessarily approval because those two mm -hmm. things are very different, but learned how to accept people and give them respect and dignity and disagree with them, you know, because love doesn't necessarily mean agreement. I mean, I have three daughters, you know, I have a 14 year old, almost 15 year old. God bless you. That, like, Jesus, if I had known, like, I mean, I don't agree with the, the lot of things that she does, I, uh, but beyond her, I have a seven year old who we call the tiny dictator. And I don't agree with almost anything she says or does, but right. boy, do I love her. And boy, do I, does she know that I love her? And even in this, like I have an identical twin brother who is gay and is married to a man. They've been married for, oh gosh, close to 10 years now. And I love him and I love his partner and they're in our lives. And we have a very good relationship, even though I'm me and share my testimony of leaving homosexuality across the country. And they're very against my ministry, but they very much love us and we very much love them. And so I think that one of the things that causes this tension is not our beliefs, but it's how we incarnate them and live them out. And the church does not do a good job of living out our actual beliefs when it comes to the LGBTQ community. Yeah. So I'm sure Luke could speak to that too, but um, how does the church do better? You just mentioned your brother. That's got to be Ten, there's got to be some tension there. Um. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's always tension there, but tension is not bad. Tension, like, if we truly are people who believe that we're called to live in truth and love, that's yeah. a tightrope. <laughs> and there should be tension. Like, grace and truth, mercy and judgment, like, there are these things in Christianity that feel like they're polar opposite or, or against each other, but really and truly what they're creating is this beautiful tension in the middle in this, this sweet spot of the, the, the magnitude of who God is and what he's called us to do and live. And so it's like, if you don't feel the tension, you're not living like Christ lived. <laughs> like We should feel a lot more tense all the time. <laughs> and like, for me, when I, when I talk about this with the church, it's like, get to know people, like make them a part of your world. Don't make relationship conditional on agreement because that's a problem. And it's becoming a bigger problem in our world beyond just Christianity, where if we don't agree, we can't relate. What is that? Like we should be able to love and affirm people and stand up for them, even if we disagree. Like, you know, my brother, you know, when he, when he and his, his husband were first together, marriage laws weren't what they are now. And he thought that I would be on the, you know, front line of those picketing against gay marriage. I have no problem with him legally being married to a man. I don't believe it's the same thing as holy matrimony. I don't believe it's the same thing as what Christian biblical marriage is, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't fight for him to have the same rights under the law that I have. I mean, absolutely I would. You know, when I see people, you know, and I've, and I've gotten a little criticism in my own community and my own 
fields of ministry because you know the the debate that's gone on about the would you go to a gay wedding or would you bake a cake for a you know a, a gay couple and I'm the guy that is I was at my brother's wedding I couldn't be his best man I don't I couldn't affirm it that way but I could show up and say I love you and I'm going to set up chairs and tables and and you know give a toast and say what I can to bless you at this wedding of course I'm going to do that because because God is kind to me and I want to be kind to you. God shows me love and, and respect and dignity. And, and I want to show that to you. And I don't have to agree with everything in order to do that. And so um, I think that I think that the church has to reckon with this, this tension point of truth and love and conscience versus comfort, where a lot of the times we're objecting to things because we're uncomfortable, not because it's actually a violation or a true violation of our conscience. It's just something we're uncomfortable with. Like, you know, for example, you know, in being engaged relationally with people that are, that are in this community for, for a Christian or a pastor and, you know, thinking, well, if I'm, if I'm involved in their life, are they going to construe that as approval of their choices? It's like, well, if you don't say anything, if you don't make your beliefs clear, then it might be. But if you make your beliefs clear and you choose to love and choose to engage, you're just choosing relationship and that's actually good. And what the Lord does with all of us, he loves us when we're still sinners and still separate from him. He pursues us. Shouldn't we be modeling that for the world? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Um, I don't know. Well, just tell me if it's too personal or stuff. I, it's, it's about sin. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, I feel like, you know, um, in my also like my doubts about sin might also be because of the um catholic environment and how we talk about that stuff yeah um but so do you think that then your brother or any other gay man in a gay relationship is gonna it's going to help like the pirate pizza fell for eternity I'm really glad you asked that question. It's a question that my brother asked me um, a, a while ago. Actually, he put it this way. He was like, well, I believe you're going to heaven and I believe I'm going to heaven because he, he identifies as a gay Christian. And he said, you know, but you think I'm going to hell. And my response to him is the same that I say every time I go when I speak in any church or any event or any podcast, I, I, I'm not the person who gets to declare who's going to heaven or hell. Like, I don't want that job. I would not be a good steward of that job because I would be on the freeway sending people to hell all the time because people cut me off and I'm not happy about it. Like, I don't want that job. So I am not the judge of if a person, if a person claims to have a relationship with Jesus and he's their savior, their salvation is between Jesus and them. Like I, I can truly say, as a Christian, I believe you need to be in relationship with Jesus to be saved and go to heaven. I will make no qualms about that. But with my, with someone who's identifying as Christian and behaving in a gay, in a gay uh, manner or acting out homosexually or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, and including someone who claims to be a believer and is heterosexually having sex and in a relationship outside of marriage, which is also called sexual sin or someone who's having multiple sexual partners, or someone who is looking at pornography consistently. All of this comes under that same passage of scripture that again, 
often gets singled out just for the gay community. But in this instance, it says something that is really important. And it says, those who practice these things, meaning unrepentantly across their life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not a, it's not a, like so often in scripture, it's not a, like a condemnation. It's a descriptive of basically where, and I say this to my brother, like, I can't tell you that you're going to hell, but I also see in your life that you're practicing this behavior unrepentantly. And that concerns me because I don't know where that will make you end up in life. Because I know for me, when I was practicing this behavior, my heart was moving further and further away from the Lord. And so I don't think it's about the behavior itself. I think it's our heart. It's that when we engage in things that the Lord says, don't, there's a reason he says, don't. And there's a consistent over time erosion that begins to happen to our hearts and our relationship with him. And when our relationship becomes distant with the Lord and we move further away from him, like there are some branches of Christianity that says, you know, once saved, always saved. And then there's others that are like, you know, you sneeze wrong and you lose your salvation. I don't believe either of those two things. I believe that a good God does not force his love on any of us and no one can lose their salvation, but people might be able to throw it away. They might be able to move or fall out of love with the Lord. And that relationship breaks down because relationship is what the gospel is about. God's relationship with us and our relationship with him and our relationship with each other in the world. And anything that erodes relationship, either, you know, between me and you or between me and the Lord, that's a problem. And so when I see that scripture and it says, if you continue these things, the end result will, will inevitably be that you're not, you're, you don't experience eternity. I don't think it's because that sin made you unacceptable to God. I think it's the position of our heart as we continue in disobedience, whatever that disobedience is, whether it be lying gossiping, homosexual sex, heterosexual sex outside of marriage, like whatever it is, whatever the sin is, if we make a practice out of it, our relationship with the Lord is going to suffer. And if our relationship with the Lord is, suffers, you know, where, where do we end up? And so my, my response is, I'm not going to tell any person that they're going to hell because they identify as gay or acting homosexually. But what I will say, I said to my brother, I don't have the, the joy of being able to assure you that you're good. I have to warn you that your behavior is putting you in a very vulnerable position because that's what the word of God says, that if you continue and persist in this, it's not going to end well for you. And that's not saying that like, if he were to die today, that he's going to be in hell. That's between him and Jesus, not my job, not my way above my pay grade. My job is to encourage people in relationship with the Lord to be submitted to him, to walk that next step in, in obedience with him every single day, growing closer and more obedient and more surrendered to him, which is what I do, you know, and, and I have my moments where I'm like, I don't want to, Lord, I want to, I want to disobey, you know, and I can't, like, I, I can't. And if I do, I have to repent. And because I can repent and I recognize it as, as something I need to repent of, I can say that I'm in a good relationship with the Lord where it gets into that dangerous area is where it's like, you're practicing this. You're consistently practicing this. You're, you're, you're disagreeing with the word of God that says that this is a problem. And because of those things, I have to, as your brother and as a Christian say, 
you're in a, you're in dangerous ground. Doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that this is a problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. <laughs> you don't have to agree with me, but I hope it makes logical. No, but I mean, I I understand why you what what you're saying. Yeah, Thanks. you know, it's interesting, Drew. Uh, you know, I wasn't uh, in a gay relationship, but so much of your story resonates with me uh, because I had very much the same experience uh, growing up, like trying to be better, never feeling like I'm good enough, having rejection issues, trying, mm -hmm. trying, trying uh, to do oh. more and more and more to please God, make him love me more to the point where I end up right. in a romantic relationship with a, a young man from church who, uh, you know, pretty much became agnostic uh, in the course of our relationship. And I knew by continuing to be with him that I, I was choosing him over my relationship with God. That same tension that you described, I felt. And I remember right. there was a woman who loved the Lord who saw me. Um, it was actually at my friend uh, Sarah uh, Ricky's wedding. She saw me and I was in college and she said, oh, Janelle, how are you doing? And I said, oh, good or whatever. And uh, she goes, are you still with that boy? You know, and uh, <laughs> like yeah we're kind of seeing each other and she's like Janelle you know better like this and I was so mad I was so mad because how dare right. she tell me what sin is right at first she knows he's a Christian boy right. she didn't know anything and looking back right. it, it was just that my heart was like it wasn't fully surrendered to the Lord you know um but I do think man it it's a hard this is hard because like you described your, your own family member, you know, you shared the womb with your brother, uh, to be able to say to somebody, yeah, yeah. uh, I love you. And I don't, I don't know what the end game is, but this is what the word of God actually says. And I know when Lou and I were talking, um, a few weeks ago when we recorded her episode, you know, we talked about the church and how it's harmed the LGBTQ community. And you've affirmed some of that, but I also asked her in that, yeah. Yeah. I also asked yeah. her in that conversation if it was the way that the church has acted out or the word of God that she has an issue with. And Lou, I remember, do you remember what you said? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Is, it, is it my turn now? Okay. So I have a quite, I have another question. Yeah. Okay. Um, my question is, you said, okay, I don't really remember the exact words you used. But um, you said something like, if God tells you not to do something, there is a reason why he doesn't want you to do because it's some, somehow really, you know, harmful yeah. for you yeah, or bad. And my, my, my question is, well, and I've talked about um, homosexuality with um, a lot of people with different opinions and all of that. And um, one, the reason that people usually bring up why they think it's um, bad. It's because it's unnatural because from a homosexual relationship, like you cannot have kids. Um, but hmm. I have a, I kind of have a problem with that because I, I think it's cruel. Too. I think it's cruel for like even heterosexual couples that maybe want to have kids, but cannot, or like just, I think it just kind of, um, brings down the level, like the import. I think the importance of love, yeah. um, like just making it about um, reproduction and having and having sex to have yeah. kids. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's a terrible thing to say. Um, but it's the it's usually the reason um that people give me when I ask them, hey, why do you think um homosexuality is bad for people? Like right. why do you think someone should not be gay? Right, right. Um so what do you think? Well, I, that's like, a great question. And I I agree with you. I think it's a really harmful and and uh, short-sighted reasoning because you're right. Like there are plenty of heterosexual couples who just are infertile. And if you're judging God's favor on their ability to procreate, that's a problem. Like, you know, it's, that's not, that's, that's one aspect or one fruit of sexuality. It's not the whole purpose. And that's kind of goes back to what I was talking about before of like, we don't have a good theology yeah. of sexuality and you know, which is ridiculous because sexual themes and marital themes are start to finish one of God's favorite analogies in the entirety of the Bible. And he's telling us something through it. And it's more than just like have babies and multiply or don't use birth control because now you're going against the, you know, the mandate of what sexuality is. It's, it's so much bigger than that. And so when I look at it and when I look at scripturally why I believe homosexuality is not God's will or purpose for sexuality or for humanity, I go back to what God affirms, not necessarily what he says don't do, but what he says is good and right. And there's very few things that he says sexually are good and right uh, in the Bible. And it kind of goes against that same argument of like, well, Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. Well, Jesus didn't say a lot of things against a lot of things that we know implicitly by who he was, he would have a problem with. He didn't ever say don't sexually abuse children, but we know he would have a huge problem with that by what he affirmed in sexuality. And so for me, I go back to the very, ba ba very basic beginning of scripture with Adam and Eve. And I look at how God made male and female unique, both bearing his image, both, you know, displaying different attributes of his character and his nature. And he made them for each other. And you know, that's an analogy that Paul then refers back to in the book of Ephesians that refers to Christ in his church. And so it's not even really about male and female together in marriage. It's pointing to something about his relationship with us that's only revealed through that relationship and through that, that parable, that analogy, or that sacrament, to use a more high religious term. Um, because all a sacrament is, is a, is a temporary physical thing that is representing a spiritual truth that is real and true spiritually. And so when I talk about it and when I talk about, well, why is homosexuality not God's will and not his intention and thus, you know, wrong or sinful, it's because God's intention, not, you know, we have to know what we're for, not what we're against. And God's intention for sexuality in the creation of male and female joined together you know, in that union is representative of his union with us, his church. And he's telling us something about that. And anything outside of that is going to be a distortion of it, which includes all of the broken models of marriage you see in the narrative descriptions of the Old Testament, where it's like, you know, we could go on and on about all that bull crap and knowing that the Bible isn't saying this is good. It's just describing what was going on. And then also letting us see all the consequences of that. Like literally I am preaching on Sunday on the life of Joseph 
And that is a crap circus of family dysfunction right there. That's what happens when you have two wives and two substitute wives and 12 children among four wives. Bad idea, you know, monogamy, (laughs) that's much healthier. And so it's, you know, I, I go back to the beginning. I go back to what God intended before the fall, before sin ever entered the story. And you see, what is his intention? And then the New Testament always points back to that. Jesus always points back to sexuality and that union before it was ever marred by sin, before it was ever broken by human dysfunction, before God ever had to lay down laws or descriptive laws that then kind of mitigated the damage of those broken sexual relationships in the current time and culture that they were in. Like, you know, the, the, you know, we can open this, this can of worms for a brief second, like, you know, in the old Testament where if someone, um, you know, the, the Leverite marriage thing of like, if your brother has a wife and he dies before producing offspring, the brother then goes and has, takes that woman on as his wife so that they can produce children. So that, and it's all cultural, but it's all jacked up at the same time. And none of that was God's heart or intention at the very beginning before sin entered the world and before sin entered humanity and everything broke like a mirror shattered. And now the image is all distorted, but you look at the gospels and it brings it right back to that whole complete picture as an analogy of this is God's relationship with us. And so when I look at that, there's so many other things that tell me this is not God's intention for sex. Like, you could take homosexuality out of it and just say pornography. God would never, that is so far outside of God's intention for sexuality to be this intimate, connected, covenantial, like bond that now people can just look at and, and, and exploit on the internet. That's so far outside of God's intention for that, that thing that's supposed to bond and to unite people together man and woman, but ultimately God and man. And so you could look at any other sexual expression outside of marriage, and you could still see that it doesn't match in any way, shape, or form the power and the potency and the revelation that's given in just that one thing that God said yes to. So that's where I go every single time and why I I go back to it and why I wrestle it out and why I don't have a better argument for it because I don't feel like I need to. I feel like going back to what God's intention is for it and also understanding that if you're not married, that marital relationship is pointing to our union with Jesus. So every single one of us can experience that, which is ultimately what his goal and intention is anyway, that the single life, not married, not having tangible sex on this, you know, in this world is not less of a life just because you're not experiencing that. Because ultimately that relationship is meant to point us to the intimacy and the bond and the covenantal relationship we're supposed to have with the father, with, with God, the father anyway. So that's my long winded answer to your question. Thank you. You're welcome. So, real quick, Drew, for somebody who's not a Christian, who's listening to this and is thinking, what did I just listen to? Uh, <laughs> real quick. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you want to share the gospel, but do you want to just share briefly why, why you picked Jesus over? I mean, for you, that's what you did. You picked the relationship with God. You wanted something real with God over what you could experience uh, in the other things. So 
I know people have different views on whether you have to make that decision or not. And I appreciate you uh, sharing about your brother and different things. But I'm just wondering why, why you, why you chose Jesus when you could have had that tangible, um, you know, love right in front of you. Yeah, I think that probably the biggest reason why Jesus is who I choose and still choose and, um, and why I did choose him back then is he's the most real thing that I know. And he's the most consistent. Like when I truly begin to understand God's nature and his character, not the broken ways that I perceived it or the, the filters that I put on it myself with my own dysfunction, but when I really begin to understand his character and who he was, there's just nothing that matches it. There's nothing that matches the faithfulness and the love and the mercy and the grace and the redemptive potency of our God. Um, a passage of scripture that is so foundational to my life is Isaiah 61. And it's one of my favorite passages of scripture because, um, you know, partly because it's what Jesus chose to read out of in the scroll of Isaiah when he was in the synagogue in the gospels. And he basically declared it as his mission statement. And it's so potent and powerful. It says, you know, it starts with something, you know, some stuff that we wouldn't necessarily in our cultural context understand of like the year of the Lord's favor or Jubilee, but it says, you know, he's come to proclaim freedom for the captive, sight for the blind, release of prison, you know, for the prisoner, the, the healing of the sick. And for our ashes, he gives us beauty. For our, our despair, he gives us gladness, a garment of praise. And it goes down in further in that passage, and it talks about, for your former shame, I will give you a double portion of grace. And that's what I've experienced from the Lord. There's no one else in my life. I mean, my wife is amazing. I love my wife. She's my favorite human being on this planet. But she cannot redeem my choices. She can't give me a double portion of grace for my former shame. She can love me, and she loves me well, and she challenges me, and she's my partner in crime in life. But only Jesus has the power to do what, he, what that scripture says and, and what he has done. I mean, in my life, there's another part of that scripture that talks about rebuilding places wrong, long devastated for generations. You know, and I can look in my family history, in my father's side of my family, there's six generations of divorce. That's devastating. But Jesus has the power and the ability to give me a whole and healthy marriage. And I've been married now for almost 17 years, which is longer than any marriage previous has lasted. And he is, he's redeeming generations of brokenness in my life. And it's because of all of that. It's because of the fact that the gospel is true, that it's not only true historically and logically, but it's been true in my life. The supernatural reality of God's redemption has been true in my life. I've seen it with my own eyes. I, I know it and I believe it with all of my heart and I believe with all of my heart, I'm not his favorite <laughs> and that whatever he's done for me, he can do for anybody else. Whatever he's done in the past, he can do today. He's absolutely who he is and there's no one more consistent. And so he's won my trust. And I think for a kid who was rejected and abandoned and abused and neglected, trust is huge. God has earned my trust. One final question from me, and then Lou's got the very final question. But um, for somebody who's listening to this, and they're still listening, and they feel that struggle, maybe they haven't told anyone that they're struggling in this area, or 
maybe they're just hiding something and feeling like, man, I could trust somebody like this, but I feel like I don't know who I could talk to around me. Um, do you have any suggestions for that person um, as a wrestling? Yeah, I think the first thing that I would say is that God loves you. Whether or not you love him, he already loves you. And he is the safest place to go with any struggle, any sin, any doubt, any fear, anything. He is, he is absolutely the safest place. Uh, also, we live in a world that you don't have to have someone in your own town because we are all interconnected. I mean, I'm talking to people from 10 hours north of me and nine hours, you know, time zones away from me in northern Italy and in southern Oregon. And we're right here having a great conversation. And there's a lot of resources for people. And, and before, before I even get into that, I think I have to say, because our, our culture villainizes attempts or villainizes ministry that essentially is just discipleship. Um, helping people live their lives in in surrender to Jesus. Uh, that's a, a lot of that is villainized. So let me just say this. It is not about going from gay to straight at all, because the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holy. It's holiness unto the Lord. And that's the same thing. Like heterosexual does not make you more virtuous. Like holy makes you more virtuous. Whether you struggle with same-sex attraction, whether you struggle with gender dysphoria, gender identity disorder, or transgender identity, whether you are all the way into surgical augmentation and you regret it, or whether you are just considering it, whether you're in a gay relationship, whether you're in a heterosexual broken relationship, none of that truly matters there because God is right there, ready to meet you and ready to walk with you in this. And there are lots of people all around this world and this country that have testimonies like mine, um, testimonies even cooler than mine. Like, <laughs> seriously, mine's boring. Like, some of my friends, I have a couple friends, Angel and Luis, who were victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida. Oh my and gosh. They gave their lives to Jesus, having been shot on the ground of this club. And now the Lord has done such powerful things in their lives, they travel the world sharing the gospel. With people their lives are transformed i have my friend kathy grace who lived as keith for 12 years was post-surgical transsexual and the lord just made her fall in love with him and years into that relationship then decided to say hey how about you become who i made you to be rather than who you've become since then and led her to detransition and come back to her original gender and these stories are they're real and there's a lot of them and no matter what our culture says, like there is hope and there is redemption and there is, there is a life to be lived regardless of whether or not these feelings ever go away or change or transform. There are many people who the Lord has given abundant life because that's his promise. We come to him, he gives us life and life more abundant. And that doesn't mean married with a bunch of kids. My story happens to include that, but I would argue sometimes those kids make it a little less abundant sometimes. <laughs> make it a little bit more lean on the me time, but I digress. I, I would also just want to throw in one resource that I, I've heard really great things about, and Drew, you probably are familiar, but um, Jackie Hill Perry's book, uh, Gay Girl, Good God. Yep. I've heard that's yep. excellent. It's a great book. There's also, um, there's a lot, of, again, a lot of people Rosaria Butterfield, uh, 
Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. She's an amazing woman. Uh, you've got Christopher Yuan. Uh, what's his book called? Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. He's an amazing guy. You've got the late Cy Rogers, which um, he passed on, went to be with the Lord this last year. But before that, that man was ridiculous and amazing. Lived a life of surrender to the Lord, having come out of a transsexual background and then became a multinational pastor and speaker and music artist. And he was amazing. Check out him. And there's multiple resources, including support groups and ministries that specifically speak to these issues. Restored Hope Network, the Changed Movement. Um, I, I could go on and on and on and on and on about all that's available. Um, but the bottom line is, all of this is just learning to love Jesus more and surrender to him. So one final question from me. I, I keep on saying that, but I really mean it this time. Uh, you just mentioned that there's uh, villainizing uh, of what, what you're doing, uh, right. which I think it's honest and, and truthful, um, but it doesn't come just from one side. Sometimes it comes from the church too. And then you also touched on, you know, the way that the church has messed this up and then culture has messed it up, right? So there's a lot of messiness in the ministry that you've been positioned in and oh, that you no, I know, right? <laughs> Yeah. So um, as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, man, you know, I have my own family of origin issues and you're talking like specifically about things that are very tender and close and intimate to you and, and your story. I'm just thinking, wow, uh, how big is your prayer team? And for somebody who is listening and who is a Christian, how can they be praying for you specifically? Because yeah. you're in a messy messy place. Yeah. You know, my prayer team is always recruiting more members. And <laughs> if you go to my website, you can sign up to get a newsletter, which sometimes I send out. I'm not a very good uh, administrator, so it doesn't send out a lot. But um, I, I always need more people praying for us because we are, uh, along with trying to help the church understand these issues and try to help people that are struggling. I also am involved in talking with lawmakers and, you know, trying to not challenge laws that protect people, but to make sure that when we build laws that protect people like the LGBTQ community, it's not at the expense of other people. You don't, you don't find equality by pushing other people down. Mm. You find it by respecting and giving dignity and, 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 and uh, safety to everybody, not just the people that you're trying to, you know, elevate in the moment. So I could always use more prayer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Lou, I'll, I could ask more, but I'm done. I, I, you can ask your question. <laughs> Defending Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Of those four gifts that some believe you can find in the relationship with Jesus Christ, which stands out the most in your life right now and why? Authenticity. I think that that's been something that's marked my life since that day that I confessed to 50 people. Like it's just been the thing that I think that we don't, we're not going to make progress in this issue unless we have a high level of authenticity, which means owning our mistakes and owning our failures as the church. It doesn't, it doesn't say that our theology is wrong to say that we have not lived out our theology well. And that only comes from being authentically, um, authentically motivated. And I think that authenticity too, if I really want to get technical about it, like the word authentic um, has been hijacked a lot 
in our culture to mean honesty and to, to mean, you know, just telling what you feel or what's true. But truly the root word means that you're living according to what the creator or author had intended you to live. So authenticity is actually about being a closer image to what was intended you to be. And when I look at my life, not just the sexuality piece, that's, that's one piece. But, you know, when I was years back, when I was still dealing with a whole lot of family brokenness and rejection issues, I was timid and quiet. And I, you can't even imagine. I, I didn't stand up for anything. I was a pushover. Like there was a lot of stuff in my life that is not at all how God intended me to be. Like he made me on purpose for purpose just like he's made every single one of us on purpose for purpose. And when we are truly authentic, we are finding that purpose. We are finding truly what God intended in us, in our personality, in our temperaments, in our giftings, and in the general call that he gives all of humanity to be surrendered to him and his will. And so when I think about it, the thing that stands out to me the most in that list is authenticity. Um, I, I think that it's the the thing that, has made me the most confident in the work that God is doing in my life and has done in my life is I've never felt more like myself. Wow. Well, Drew Barriessa, thank you so much for sharing your story and giving us a lot to think about. I think, Lou, would you agree that there's a lot here to chew on and to kind of go, wow. I really, I really liked um, the conversation that we had tonight. I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I Googled you, by the way, when Danelle told me. <laughs> I'm <just> gonna... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know. If that's like a privacy, I, I just... Oh, I not, at all. not at all. Not at all. So I Googled to your episode. <laughs> I, uh, um, so I Googled you and, and I didn't really know what to expect. Um, but but I was... I, I'm happy with the conversation we had tonight. I think it was inspiring and and really nice. Awesome. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> well, until next time. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting co-hosts to join me to share their personal stories and to ask their honest questions about the Christian faith. Each month, we hope to feature a different co-host and together invite guests on to share from their own faith journeys and experiences. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, But if you're curious at all about what's so great about Jesus, I hope you come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.